Okay, and we are live here at Out The Box TV. I'm your host, Krill. G -G -G. Welcome to Out The Box Talks. We have a brand new episode today. Got my co-host, A-Level, with me. A-Level the Wiz. You know what it is. South Bronx Finest, A-Level the Flyers. Check it out. Beautiful, um, beautiful. Yo, I got to big you up, man. Shout out to you, man. You just had a birthday, man. Happy birthday to you, man. 4-4, 44th chapter. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yes. So we got a special guest with us today, man. Like, big, you know, really important name to hip-hop. You know what I mean? Important name. And I'm just really excited. And I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to share this interview with you, A-Level, because you are... The, the 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 connoisseur when it comes to like just you know original hip-hop my brother man i don't even consider myself a connoisseur i just a real life documentarian man yes i, I, li I live through it i live through it you know what i'm saying the, yes. i don't have to have to really read books to study hip-hop man the book is inside me and it will be coming soon <laughs> so i mean without further ado i know we got the man in the middle right here man we we are so excited to have brother speech the main mc the front man of the two times grammy award-winning group arrested development welcome wow. to thank, you. thank you good to be here with y'all man good to vibe <laughs> yeah. So we got a lot to talk about today, man. You know, um, uh, this new album, Don't Fight Your Demons. I definitely want to talk to you about this. But for people out there that don't know, right? I feel like in my mind, I feel like everybody should know who Rested Development is. But just for the, you know, the millennials, like we were saying, A-level, don't, right. don't know, give them a little, like a brief history on who Arrested Development is. Um, well, Arrested Development, we are a hip-hop group, obviously. We kicked off in 1987 um, in Atlanta, Georgia. And our first record was in 91, really 92, somewhere in there. Like, And um, won some Grammys during like 93, I think it was. And yep. have had probably 12, 13 hours and, you know, touring the entire planet and um, numerous times over. And um, yeah, we call our music life music. It's like to contradict a lot of the music that unfortunately was sort of glorifying death. And, and so our music was like the antithesis of that type of vibe and, and just bringing a whole, just basically bringing more diversity to the hip hop world. That's That was the goal and that's that's who we are. Wow, that's dope, man. That's dope. That's dope, so, um just please, if you could just discuss uh, your humble beginnings, you know, your rearing, your, your childhood, you know, yeah. things of that nature. My, my, my childhood was, was a, two things. First, um, you know, I was born in 68, the same year Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered and assassinated. So I was born in a very turmoil-oriented time period. My mother and father... Um, got a house like very, very soon before I was born, they got a house in the suburbs. We was the only black family in this suburb. I'm from Wisconsin and the suburb was called Wauwatosa. And so I was born in this very suburban, um, almost like storybook-like 
area, and yet the racism was extremely palatable and real and in your face. So much so that back then, you know, me and my brother, um, I had a brother, I'll talk about that in a minute. Me and my brother would get jumped by what was called, it was a gang, basically a white gang called the Greasers back when I was a kid. And we would get jumped by then. And then at the same time, I was raised partially in the rural South with my grandmother in a small town called Glimp, Tennessee. It's real small town, like about a hundred and something, you know, maybe somewhere in the hundreds of families there, not even thousands. And, um, you know, well water, no electricity, um, you know, pigs and, and farmland and all of this type of energy. So it was sort of two different worlds going back and forth. And then my mother and father both were activists, black activists. So they were involved in a civil rights struggle. My mom owned and still owns the largest black newspaper in Wisconsin. Um, it's called the Milwaukee Community Journal. It's been around for like 44 years. It's the biggest black paper. Everybody in Milwaukee that reads papers knows about it. And growing up around that, it's right smack dab in the middle of the hood in Milwaukee. And so Milwaukee is one of the worst places for black people to grow up in. This is statistically what's been already said, right? So you get, you know, like I'm a mixture. I'm looking at three squares in this, this interview right now. I'm a mixture of three different realities. You know what I mean? Like the rural South one, suburb life another and right in the middle right in the middle of the hood is the last so it's like all three of those things sort of make up who you're looking at wow that's a lot man you know when you spoke about the place milwaukee and and and, and the effect it has like i noticed that you referenced that on, on the album as well and we'll definitely get get into that a level you had another question for for speech I like Before to believe um, everything uh, everyone has a purpose. Yeah, I agree some, with that. Some of us go through life not fulfilling their purpose yeah. because they can't even identify with what purpose is. Hmm. You know, and what at what point in your life were you able to determine what your purpose was in life? What was it going to be? For me personally, I think I got that early on. Um, I saw Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5. They used to have a cartoon when I was a kid. And every Saturday, their cartoon would come on. And I would watch that. And as you could imagine, there wasn't a lot of black anything on television back then. So just seeing a black family, period, and then the amount of talent and the, you know, the charisma, the dance moves, just seeing that gave me this idea that I wanted to entertain. But I didn't really know how to hone my voice back then. So it would turn out that probably about seven years after that, my father owned a nightclub, which used to be called a disco growing up. And at this disco, um, I would be around all the DJs. I'm, I was 13, 12, and all the people I was hanging around was 20s, you know, in their mid 20s. And they're spinning records, I'm around, you know, women and the whole nightclub disco scene and i learned how to dj and that was when i realized like okay that whole michael jackson inspiration that i had i'm gonna put it into making people dance instead of making the records that make people dance so mm -hmm. i was the one that was spinning 
And I started spinning at that nightclub at the age of 13. I was the youngest DJ in Milwaukee and I was spinning at a nightclub. And of course, the only reason I was even allowed to be in there was because my father owned it. And it was when I realized this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, I'm supposed to be a musician. Mm. Wow. wow. How, how much of an impact did your parents have on you in terms of having that entrepreneurial spirit that would then have an impact on your business matters as an artist? Everything. I mean, so as far as how much impact, because that's a two part question to me. So like they had a huge impact on who I am. I, I realized that more and more the older I get. And I saw entrepreneurship as something that we should do as a people like control your own business, control your destiny, hire people within your, you know, your community and have a, 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 a secluded and a secure scenario that can make sure you're making a living. My mother and father taught me that on both sides. My father was a serial entrepreneur. So, I mean, he owned things from gas stations and this was in the sixties and early seventies when racism was more overt. You know, like I told you, Martin Luther King Jr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 68. So you're looking at him owning things like a gas station and then owning a catering business and then moving from that to this to this. And so I was just learning as a young kid, okay, we can control our destiny. We can do things that we are actually controlling the narrative. My mother owned a newspaper. So obviously the stories are about black people, about the community. It's about our struggles and our victories, the things that are going on in the black community. So I'm just, and it's funny cause they, they didn't have like long talks with me about this per se. Although we did have talks every once in a while, but it was mainly just prototype. It's like, I'm looking at them and I'm like, okay, this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we're supposed to roll as a people. And then yet I would see the opposite side of that track whenever I was in the hood and I'd be like, Milwaukee is so uh, like segregated in a sense. It's, it's way more than New York, for instance, it's way more than most other cities and states in the country. And so you'll see like this harsh divide and difference between how blacks were living and how whites were living. And I would see that, like, the contrast was so stark, you know what I'm saying? So it was, um, I don't know, it taught me a lot just about, okay, we got to control our destiny or else we don't have we don't have no one coming to save us. We got to do this on our own. So, yeah, I think, you know, all of those things had a lot to do with me. Then when it came to my business, I think it had a lot to do with it. But you got to remember Arrested Development's first record, was in 92. So I'm trying to think exactly how old I was. I might've been 22. So I don't know how, how y'all were when you were 22, but a 22 year old is a 22 year old. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. He's a young dude. He's pretty much, you know, very much a young man. So Out there. <laughs> I didn't know. And I come from Milwaukee. So Milwaukee didn't have any like 
like hip hop heroes that I knew that already got signed. This is what they did. This is how they work the business. This is how they handle everything. I didn't have that. You know what I mean? So Milwaukee, the last famous person that I knew from Milwaukee was Al Jarreau. And that was of a thoroughly different generation than me. And it wasn't hip hop. Right. So, um, but I would later meet people from New York and they had all of these examples of cats that got, you know, they got on from over here and they, you know, so it was a totally different world for me in Milwaukee. I didn't have any business um, sort of heroes to look at on how to construct business. And hip hop was still forming. It was not as formed as it is now where, you know, um, P. Diddy sort of got a chance to learn from Andre Harrell. And you know what I mean? And then uh, Jay-Z got a chance to learn from you know, Russell Simmons and P. Diddy, you know, and it, so like a lot of people were able to sort of build their business savvy in hip hop as the decades would go on. But when we were coming out, none of that was even a prototype yet. Andre Harrell was out, but that was it. You know what I mean? Russell Simmons was was out and he was starting to become a mogul. I mean, Def Jam was still doing like right. when, when we was starting to do music, Def Jam was like, it was still a purple label, if you remember these days. I don't know how yeah, old yeah, yeah, I remember but that. it was before black label <laughs> Def Jam, right? So yeah. this was early days, you know what I mean? So um, you know, it's a different world. It was, it was, a different it was, world. It was Rush associated labels. There you go. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. Totally different era. So yeah, it was so I mean, I think my mom and dad's entrepreneurship had an effect on my business to some extent, though, because a lot of what we did in Arrested Development, because I'm the I'm the founder of Arrested Development. So when I started it, I did have this idea that this is going to be insular. Like we're going to do this on our own. So like the whole way I formed the group was from the perspective of okay, Early Tariq, which was a you know a member of the group, she was our stylist. She would sew clothes for us, and our clothes were very like patchy and you know patches on the jeans and very uh, thrift store you know that type of vibe. And so she would pull that in and make sure we had clothes every night. Razadon, one of the members of the group, would be uh, the one that would create our logo as well. And, you know, he made sure the graphics was tight and then so on and so forth. So we sort of had this, you know, insular, always insulated type of energy. And I think that came from me being raised that way with my mom and dad. Dope, dope. You know, speaking of Arrested Development, like it's been... It's been about 27 years since the debut album, right? Three years, five months, two days in the life. And um, I know a lot has changed in that span, right? Let me first just start off by saying this. I should have said this earlier. My son, who um, is in college, hit me up about, I think it was about last week. And he texted me and he said that... um, he heard about this record, Everyday People, but I mean, this happened just last week, uh, by Arrested Development. And he knows I'm a hip hop head. So he's like, dad, I, I really like this song. I'm like, yeah, it came out in the 90s. That's a dope record. And as I'm looking through the blogs, cause I'm always on the blogs, you know, looking for new music. I see that y'all got a new record coming out. And I got to give my son props because he brought the group's name back to the forefront of my mind. And it just was so timely because I looked and you guys had just released a single 
for becoming or i had just seen yeah. the single single for becoming so yeah. you know i just wanted to just recognize my son you know for just bringing yeah. that back to me and just looking at how many years have passed and how your music is actually affecting generations beyond me you know what i'm saying yeah. i was a probably i yeah. was probably like a teenager if not when when um you know people every day came out and all the hit records came out i remember my pops who who's who's no longer here like really loving that record you know wow um so yeah, yeah. and like i'm sure a level you could talk about a lot of a lot of the elders really loved that record it was a communal record it brought the community together young yeah. and old everyone in hip-hop was connected you know to that you know and yeah. shout shout to Taye, by the way that's my nephew yeah Word up. Talking about man yes yeah. so um yeah. um it just in reference to that project, right? Um, uh, you know, three years, five months, and two days in a life that came out, you know, I want to say 27 years ago. I'm not correct on yeah, the date, but somewhere in there. About 27 yeah. years ago. Uh, bring us up to speed on and on who Arrested Development is. Like, what, 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 what is the group today? Who does it comprise of, and, and what are their roles? Yeah. So today. Um, it's me, JJ Boogie, Farida Ali, and um, One Love. But the group constantly changed over the years. So, like, when we first started out, this is before the record deal, we were, I mean, a couple names. We had, like, we started off as, um, what was our first name? Maybe Secret Society, I think, was our first mm -hmm. name. Then it morphed into disciples of a lyrical rebellion then it morphed into arrested development so during all three of those amalgamations of arrested development it was different members so different people a dude named click was in secret society there was a dude named preacher that was in um disciples of a lyrical rebellion it was a dude named um you know papa john anyway headliner was part of all of those because when i first got to atlanta I put up a, how I met headliners, I put up a flyer saying I wanted to start a group. And I was a DJ, as I told you, since I was 13. So I wanted to start rhyming more. And I used to be called DJ Peach, which was P-E-E-C-H. And when I started rhyming, I changed it from Peach to Speech because I'm now rhyming and it just made sense to me. So once I started um, calling myself Speech, I was like, I need a DJ now. And um, Headliner was looking at the flyer. We went to the same school, the Art Institute of Atlanta. We were both going there. And he was looking at the flyer. And I was like, oh, what's up, bro? You know, you checking out this flyer. I'm trying to start this group. And he was, we started, you know, chopping it up from there. And that became the first member of my group. And then it grew from there organically. So me and Headliner used to go from club to club, you know, just doing music. But we would invite dancers and everything from painters to African drummers on stage. So the group started to be like this really big, almost like soul to soul. It was almost like a, um, like a, like a sound system. It was like, like a reggae sound system where, you know, me and headliner were sort of the core people of what we knew was the group. And then everybody else was sort of just coming around us. We had people that we would invite the audience on stage and from that point on they started following us to the next gig so it was like very organic you know what i mean and i guess my point is is that 
we hadn't really formulated yet until we got a record deal. And once we got a record deal, as everybody knows, like when you get a record deal, you got to go on the road and then that costs money. So now you got to start thinking about, well, how are we going to take 20 people on the road with us? And we can't afford that. So you start thinking about, well, who's the most, you know, necessary for the group. And for me as the leader of the group, I had to start sort of deciding, well, who's going to be the group members that go on the road and who's going to be in the photos and stuff like that. So it, it sort of came about very organically. Wow. Um, oh, so yeah. And so who's in the group now? Yeah. 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 People I mentioned, yeah. and I'm the only original in the group right now. Um, and even that it's interesting. Cause like, a lot of times people from the original group join me and get back in the group. Like it's very, I don't know, the way I've run this group over the years has been very organic. Like, like Ishi, for instance, she's one of the original members and she, she would be like, yo, I want to take, you know, I'm, I'm good. I want to start doing solo stuff. And I'm like, it's all good. So go ahead, do your thing, you know, and then I would find somebody to replace her on tour and she'd go off and do stuff. And then at certain points, she would say, you know what? I'm really looking to get back on the road. And then I'm like, okay, cool. So then I bring her back in mm -hmm. and the sister that was dancing, I'd ask her, you know, this is Ishi, she's from the original crew. And so we would just do that. And same with Razadon and all of that. So, you know, the way we sort of ran, ran things and, and the way I run things now, it's like, it's very organic in that sense. A lot of in and out, a lot of sort of like people sort of doing whatever they want to do and you know stuff like that that's that's been a lot of the the trend of this group dope, that's dope. dope that you keep an open door like that you know what i mean yeah. and you don't really feel no kind of way that, that people want to pursue whatever they want to pursue and not at all no happened. never did never did yeah i believe in that man like for me i believe in everybody like you said earlier about purpose i believe everybody has to fulfill their purpose man like we're only here for a short amount of time and in that amount of time, I want everybody to feel like they're able to pursue the things that they feel they're put on this earth to do. And if it's part of arrested development, then great. If it's not, then great. But you got to do what you feel like you come here to do. Word. Wow. Yeah, I mean, um, That's true. the terms conscious or woke, this is the, the thing that they use nowadays, right? Like that's the new term to call conscious. Yeah. Everything is awoke now. Wow, he's woke. What does that mean to you? For me personally, I mean, obviously the woke thing is a new thing. So I'll use conscious because I'm used to that. I feel like conscious is conscious of the oppression that we have been put through and the depths of it and therefore living a life that is based on counteracting that or fighting against that. And so like in the song, People Every Day, right? I talk about the nigga and the African, right? And there's these two characters in the song and basically the nigga is, the way I saw the song and this is how I still see it, the nigga is a brother or a sister that's oppressed. But so is the African, they're oppressed. The difference between the two is that the nigga wallows in that oppression and the African fights against that oppression. Neither of them are born that way and they both can change. So the nigga doesn't stay a nigga if, if, if he doesn't want to, it's a mentality. Mm -hmm. 
But once they decide to fight against it, they become what I term in that song, an African. So you'll see in the song that I keep consistency as to when I'm calling somebody a nigga or when I'm calling them an African. I never like switch them up just sort of hap you know, haphazardly. Um, so I feel that same way now, like consciousness to me is when you have made a decision to evolve, or maybe you were always that way, maybe your, your parents raised you that way, but if you weren't raised that way, once you become conscious, you evolve to a place where similar like how evolution, how that chart of evolution is, where you got the sort of ape looking you know, person and then they start standing upright and then they start walking and like the, the human being, I look at consciousness like that, but it's mentally, that you're no longer crawling anymore. You're walking now. You're standing tall and you're doing what you got to do. Not saying you're make you're not making mistakes and you're perfect, because none of us are that, but just okay, I made a decision. I'm conscious. I think of Malcolm X as the perfect example of consciousness to me. Wow. I mean, do you would you consider yourself as a as a conscious, conscious artist? Yeah, I do. I do. I definitely do. But see, you know, it's funny because to me, um, I also consider Stevie Wonder a conscious artist. So it's like, to me, it's just artists that recognize the role that they play. They recognize how influential music is and therefore they use it a, a, appropriately in that light. Like Earth, Wind & Fire, conscious, you know what I mean? So like, to me, that's what I consider conscious. Um, but there's mixtures, you know, there's some people that do show some consciousness and then, you know, other times they choose for whatever reason not to. For me, I strive to like just really truly be conscious and not as a front, but as a lifestyle. And I talk about that a lot, you know, on this new record too, like songs like Moses, for instance, right? where I talk about, you know, it's what I actually do. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It's not just like a thing I'm trying to do in order. It's not like a, a gimmick to try to get into the into the industry and make records and make money. It's not, that's not what this is. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is a real thing. It's a lifestyle. I mean, you can genuinely see that that's who you are, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no doubt about it. But, but what's funny about these terms, right? And I know you can relate to that is that, um, Back in the days when we was listening to hip hop, man, hip hop was just so much younger. There weren't as many terms. I agree. Terminologies. Oh, this person is conscious. Yeah. You know, yeah. public enemy, arrested development, uh, yeah. X Clan. That was considered in. That was dope. That yeah. was that was mainstream. You yeah. know. And but I, these terms can either work for us, and I love how you your approach and you're embracing the term. It can work for us or against us especially if we're trying to make some sort of substantial change within the culture and the community. Yeah. Um, terms like hater, yeah. you know, or, or what I like to call like sentinel devices, right? Yeah. They're designed to eliminate creative and constructive criticism for the challenges that of the quality of the music and the state of our culture. And believe it or not, you know, there are and have been a great deal of talented brothers such as yourself that have been, somewhat diminished from the mainstream surface because they challenged the misogynistic, materialistic gangster thread that has become the fabric of today's hip hop culture. You yourself could could have easily chosen to assume a complacent um, position and either, and either say, you know, either say nothing or just go along with it and say, hey, this is what they're doing nowadays and, yeah. you know, just go ahead. But I yeah. noticed you mentioned on your YouTube channel 
by the way, anyone that, you know, is watching this right now, you should definitely, I recommend you subscribe to Brother Speech's uh, channel. You know, plenty of very um, fruitful, you know, things that you can get to to grow. Um, you said, um, you mentioned on the YouTube channel, by the way, that because you, you practice self-accountability. Yeah. Self-accountability with other people with with our people that certain folks within the hip-hop conscious community won't even work with you on your records now yeah because you practice that and most people don't like to get into get into get into that what motivates you to keep pushing the envelope for keeping the truth alive in people's eyes well first of all bro for that's a great question you know for me bro it's like I don't think I could live with myself if I didn't be true to myself. So to me, self-determination and accountability is needed in order for us to heal. So we've had a huge gash or a huge injury from the oppression and the terrorism that we have sustained as a people. We know that everybody that's black knows that they feel it on a daily basis. But now we've got to heal or else we don't get anywhere. So to me, in order to heal, you have to be accountable for that healing. You have to, first of all, recognize that there's a gash. And then you yourself have to be able to, to do something to start the healing process. But if you don't even acknowledge that something's wrong, then you're never going to heal. And in fact, you only go the opposite direction. And that's true with any sickness or anything else. You got to acknowledge what's going on. And so a lot of times in hip hop music, we use the tool to expose the ills of other people, like white people or whatever. And I think that that's productive and right because there's ills that they have enacted upon us and upon the world too. But to stop at that doesn't cure anything. Because if you just recognize one gash, but not the other gash, the other gash is getting gangrene, basically. You know what I mean? Hmm. So you got to be able to recognize the things that are going against us and working against us in order to move forward. And so I feel like so many artists right now, like you said, it's in this age of the haters. So many artists are afraid. And I'm not going to call them cowards, but it is cowardice at the end of the day when a grown man or woman, but I, I'm going to focus on the dudes, a grown man cannot say in his own mind, look, this is just what I see. I'm not dissing you. I'm not wanting to disassociate with you, but this is what I see about our culture that is crushing us from within. And to me, you can't just go along with the flow when you see that. You can't unsee. I see it. And it's obvious. It's not like it's covert. It's overt. It's right there in front of our face. And what I mean by that is so much of the material that we are digesting as a hip hop loving community, especially from the mainstream, I'm really talking about the mainstream, mm -hmm. is so limited in its levels of, you know, energy and its content, diversity, all of that is so limited that it's obvious that we are missing the voice of our people really. Cause that's not what we're all on. Some people are on that. Mm -hmm. And it's funny cause I would never talk about the lower energy hip hop if it was more balanced. 
The reason I tend exactly. to call it out so much is because it isn't balanced. Preach. If it was balanced, I actually could appreciate it. Like, I get that. And then there's time for that. Like, in the Bible, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes that says, there's a time for everything under the sun. I agree with that statement. There is a time for some low-level, like, straight-up ratchet stuff. Hey, hey. I, love I really do. <laughs> And at the same time, if that's all I'm getting, though, like 90% of, of everything that's coming at me is that, that's not cool. That's when I speak out. It's not because I uh, am sort of just like a tight dude, like a prude that doesn't understand that there's different energies and they're all useful for different things in this world. I do. And I respect that. And so I guess a lot of other hip hop artists, especially in the conscious world, we've become so um sparse in the scene as far as making a good living really having hit records having a real presence in the scene that they are scared to speak up it seems like to say something about it at risk of not being cool you know what i'm saying like right. and and basically being out of the crowd again and being ostracized and being pacified, right pacified by success man you know there you go you're being pacified by success. So you've got that money now and you don't want to lose it. So if mm -hmm. I got to shut up, I'm going to shut up. If I got to, you know, just talk about only the man out here that's doing wrong to us, but not talk about us, right. then I'm going to do that because I want to keep this money coming in. And hip hop has gotten this very mogul philosophy about it. And I understand where it comes from because we never made money as a people in this industry, not compared to the people that was signing the checks. So I get that we would think that the right move is to make that money and make that the focus. But the truth is when you make money to focus, it also takes out integrity, dignity, all the other things that are actually in truth and in the long run, way more important than the money because you're gonna lose and get money and lose and get money again. But you dignity and things like that, that's your guiding principles, that's the things that move us forward as a people mm. and even as an individual is way more important than the money. Mm. You know? wow. So that's what happens, unfortunately, is people get real complacent real quick. I ain't, I ain't raising no about that because I want to stay in the end, whatever that is. You know what I mean? Wow. It's beautiful that you could speak on that because it, it comes across authentic because I know you've lived it. Right. You've very much you've been through the stages of being on top to being yep. down and then building yourself yep. back up again. And you actually I think you allude to it on the new project as well. You yep. know, um, I, I definitely want to talk about this project because I know there's a, a producer involved in it um, that I, I don't think you guys have worked with him before. His name is Configure. Right. Um, and I, I'm, I'm familiar with him because of the record that he put out with Jahi earlier this year, um, which is really a dope record. Talk to me about Configure. How did you got how did you get connected with him and his role and involvement in this new album? Don't fight your demons. So that's a great question. I didn't know Configure and I never heard his music, mm -hmm. but I'm friends with Jahi. Dope. So. Jahi's from Public Enemy, from Public Radio, I mean, Enemy Radio. So, and even before he was part of that, I just knew him as a solo artist. He would open up for Arrested Development and ask me, yo, can I come to this country or that city? And can I open up? And I always would be like, yeah, we'll work it out. Let's make that happen. 
and he's a lover of hip hop, just a great dude. So I'm a fan or a friend and fan of Jahi. So then Jahi puts out this record, Forward Future, or something like that. Yes, that was a yeah, forward was a forward. And that's the record you're referring to. So it said Jahi and Configure. And I'm I, every time he releases something, I'm, I'm checking it out. He's my dude. So I checked it out and I was like, yo, this is hot. I love the soundscapes of this. It brings me back to like to me the purity of hip hop. Great soundscapes, great lyrics. Every song is about something, you know. Like it ain't really too pre or anything, but it's like some stuff that a fifty-year-old man, fifty really one years old, could understand and relate to, and was like, "Yo, this is great." So I sit. I was in, I was working out with my trainer and my cut my um, sister-in-law, and I was playing the record while we were working out. And I sent him, uh, I recorded that, and I sent it to Jahi, and I said, yo, you got us over here rocking. He sent that to Configure. Configure then hit me up on either Twitter or some some social media thing and was like, yo, respect. I'm glad you like our, our stuff. And I said, I do. And we started building on, why don't we try to do a song together? Because I, I love the Jahi project with him. And that's how it started. And then Configure and I, he lives in um, London. So Configure started sending tracks and I just started vibing along with what he was sending. And I was already making tracks for an Arrested Development record. Mm. And it started from there and it just started to form. It was like, you know what? I like this track, that's hot. And what I liked about Configure was that his sensibility about hip hop was very similar to mine. Like the era that we're probably most influenced by was that boom bap era and you know, we like the trap sound, but it was like not really our forte. It's not where we're, it's not sort of our area of genius in a sense. So it was like, okay, let's rock with what we really like. And that was like a given. So we weren't trying to sound like, you know, whoever nowadays, like we weren't trying to sound like somebody today. We were trying to just do what we do. Mm-hmm. And that felt good. So the, so the chemistry was real easy. We just started, you know, nowadays, technologically, you start passing around tracks to each other. And, you know, I'm a I'm a producer, too. So I'm really crazy with Pro Tools. And so I'm able to edit and stuff and I'm able to arrange the song. And so when he would send me a track, sometimes it'd be like a minute and a half long. And I would put it in a Pro Tools session and make it, you know, four or five minutes or whatever and start developing a song to it and then send that to him Then he would then you know, with his, he had the multi-track scenario in his studio, he would then, you know, um, pattern the song after whatever arrangements I did. And it was just like going back and forth. And and it was just a real good energy. And I'm really grateful for that dude. Cause I don't know, I think we really, we struck a nerve with this record. Like he did seven songs on this record. And to some extent, you know, those records were sort of the heart and soul of this, this album. Wow. And so I'm really grateful you know, that we got a chance to connect. And I'm grateful he did that project with Jahi because I wouldn't have probably heard of him. Wow. I didn't know that that's how you got in contact. So that means that his production, like, that he contributed, that was, like, not too long ago. Because that no, we, came out this we, year. we started all of that, like, during the COVID-19 wow. pandemic. So um, I think, ja- I forget the month Jahi's record came out, but I'm going to say fe- maybe like March or something. I'm not probably, sure. Yeah. So if it came out in March, then I probably, you know, got to know who he was by April. And by then, 
the pandemic was pretty much widespread and no touring, no money being made in that way. So I was really like confined to the house. And that was actually a blessing in the sense of creativity because I'm just locked in the studio every day and same with him. And, you know, he's five or six hours ahead of me because I'm in Atlanta. He's in London. So we're just bouncing stuff back and forth and just really like focusing in. And then, of course, I would bring group members like One Love onto the record and stuff like that. One Love's one of the members of AD now. So, you know, it was it was cool. It was a real good energy. Dope. Now, I have to say, when I heard the album title, Don't Fight Your Demons, I was like, isn't that the whole objective, like to fight your <laughs> demons? I was yeah, like, yeah. isn't isn't it, you know, the objective to face it head on and, and like try to get yeah. it out your way, right? Um, yeah. But I feel like there was a deeper meaning behind that. Can you break down what uh, don't fight your demons really means? Yeah, so like I'm with you. Like most of my life, I've been in this mode of like, yo, fight them demons. You know what I'm saying? I might have even said it in previous records. Fight them demons, you know? And what I learned was that in life, there's certain, you know, thorns in your flesh or, or demons in your life that you're not able to ward them off for the long haul. So like in the Bible, there's this verse or parable that Jesus talks about. And one of them is that there's this man who had seven demons in him. And basically he kicked the demons out of him. But because his house or his, his shell of his body was empty, later on, the demons came back and brought even more demons with them and kept residing inside of this man. What I've learned about some things, like some demons, you can ward them off and they're gone forever. But there's some things in every one of our lives that ain't leaving easily. And that's what this title is about. It's about this personal journey of trying to evolve. But there's these demons that keep showing up. And instead of fighting them now, invite them in and let's have a talk because you're here for some reason. You keep coming back to me for some reason. And now I need to understand what your purpose has, what purpose have you served in my life? Because demons, we look at them as negative and they are negative, but they're trying to replace something needed that we do need in our life. And we're choosing the demons as a false representation of that. Wow. And so you get to know these demons, get to know how they're serving you because you're, you're entertaining them more than you care to believe. And the fact that you're entertaining them means that there's something that they're serving you. And now you got to understand what that is. And then you could kick them out and replace it with something that's real and, and, and wholesome and, you know, nutritious or whatever you want to call it for your, for your soul and your spirit. But that's what this record's about. And to me, I mean, I go real personal on this record. Like there's a lot of stuff I share in this record. If you dig deep and just listen to it on almost song i'm sharing tons of insecurities tons of things that are these demons that i'm tackling you mm. know what i mean so don't fight your demons comes from that whole little reality that revelation i had mm. Mm. you know speaking of insecurities and stuff you've dealt with i gotta go to uh moses right the track moses where you have a line where you say i asked jesus can he save me i felt myself drowning in these ladies breaking marital bonds for quick relations, took my wife on the road to nip temptations. 
I am no longer a rolling stone. Wow. So when I heard that line, I, I, I said I could only imagine that, you know, you didn't tell your wife that that was the purpose you took on the road or took her on tour. But I'm just curious to know, like, well, this is a two-part question. When did she know this, that that was the reason? And also, when did you come to that full realization that that infidelity had to stop? That's a great question. Um, honestly, it was it was when my spiritual journey was going to the next level. I realized that I didn't know how to be faithful to the woman that I had just married. Like, my father didn't know how to be faithful to my mother. My grandfather, my father's father, didn't know how to be grateful to my grandmother, um, faithful. And so I was continuing a cycle that I didn't even know how to break because I hadn't seen any examples of that cycle being broken. And so when I started going on a more of a spiritual journey in my life, I realized that not only do I need to break this cycle, but in order to break this cycle, I got to come out into the light as far as this dark thing that I'm hiding. Because, you know, being a musician, right, you're touring a lot. And my wife wasn't with me initially. So I'm going to London. I'm going to Paris. I'm going to this country, that state. And I got a lot of time on my hands. And I have a lot of history with different women that I would hook up with on the road that when I got, it's like Drake said this on one of his tunes on his um dark demo lanes or whatever his new one of his new um mixtapes was basically he would ask his you know he'd look at his phone to try to see what girls he hook up with when he gets to a certain city that's like commonplace for a lot of a lot of artists and that was commonplace for me so i realized that i was stuck in a pattern Mm. and that even though now i've married this black woman I'm still living the same pattern that I was before I was married. So I I did tell her, I told her, you know, that I had been unfaithful and we had a great discussion about if she was going to forgive me of that. And if we were, if she was, what would I do to help gain the trust that I had just smashed up in our Mm -hmm. relationship? And one of the things that, I wanted to do at first, I took some of my guys with me on tour to be my roommate. Now I'm a grown man, but I had a roommate just so that, and this dude was to hold me accountable. I talked about it just a second ago. Like his role was to hold me accountable. Now I'm a, I'm tempted just like most men are, you know what I mean? So like after the show, the ease of being able to get various things that I would want would be easy, but I had my dude with me and he, if I brought anybody back, he would know. So it was just one of those things. And then I, you know, after a while I was like, you know what, I'm going to teach my wife how to do road management and get her into this so she can come on the road with me. Wow. And that's, that changed everything. Wow. Like, it was beautiful because number one, obviously I wasn't going to bring anybody to my wife, you know? And so that helped nip that. And then it also gave us more trust. Like she could see how I was maneuvering on the road. She was seeing it now. It's like, so the trust started to build. And me and my queen, we've been together 30 years. Wow. So that's because of that, what I, that decision I made back then. If I wouldn't have made that decision, 
we would have been done 20 odd years ago. <laughs> but I made that decision back then. So that's what I was saying in, in, in the lyrics of Moses. Wow. Now, your spiritual journey, did that all lead you to Christ? It did. I, I, I knew something. I knew something was there, brother. Yeah, I picked. I picked that up. Yep. And um, I know you were mentioning it uh, somewhere in the YouTube channel. You mentioned the, how you got saved. Yeah. Can you just explain that journey and what led you to that process? I mean, um, yeah, Christianity for the most part, in terms of our history as blacks in this country, is not really looked upon in a great light because oh, it's a white man's religion and. Yeah. you know the bibles and enslave us and things of that nature so it's interesting for a guy like yourself within the conscious community you know yeah. to 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 choose that route can you just explain that no doubt man i, I appreciate the question so to be honest i was definitely one of those people that you just described like so i knew about christianity my whole life like most black people somebody in your family was Christian or a lot of people were, you know what I'm saying? Like my grandmother was, who is one of the most influential people in my life. My mother was. So whether it was going to church with my mom or my grandmother, I, I was always raised around it. But as soon as I got old enough to like sort of do my own thing, I did. And I was out, I was like, I'm good. And so then I was studying Europe. I was studying, you know, Nation of Islam. I was studying Shrine of the Black Madonna, which is like a movement that's in Detroit and Atlanta and certain places. And I was doing a lot of other things that I was very interested in. Christianity was the last thing on my mind. And a sister, uh, I explained it in my book. I have a book called What is Success? And there's a sister named Nisha that auditioned for me um, for a European tour. She was from a church. I didn't, I could care less. I just wanted to sing it. And so she auditioned. She was a beast on the vocals. I hired her. We started to tour together. Now she's sharing her faith, right? This is a thing that Christianity talks about a lot. And I'm like, me and my queen were like, we're good. Trust, we're good. So I felt Christianity was powerless. It was weak. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I would tell her straight to her face about that. And um, she invited us to a Bible study, basically. And it was just dudes in the room. And it was in this very room that I'm sitting in right now. They came to my house and I didn't know them. They were strangers to me. And we just started opening up the Bible. I had tons of questions because I'm a studious kind of guy. Like I like reading. I like learning. So I had questions about the Bible. Many of them were sort of, um, you know, side eyed because I had a lot of, you know, preconceived thoughts about the Bible. And what I realized over time in studying those scriptures with various people was that a lot of my side-eyedness was less about the Bible and it was more about how I see people living the Bible or not living it. Wow. <laughs> so I realized that a lot of my issues was with people that were claiming to be Christians that were living lives that totally appalled me. And that's still to this day. So like, a lot of what I see in the media that claim to be evangelistic or evangelicals or Christians, and a lot of what I see even on TV, it does not impress me very much. So I'm still, even to this day, even though I'm a Christian, I'm not a religious dude. Like I'm actually the type of dude that really gets into the depths of it. Like I really want the real meat, 
not not all the frills and all of that. That's just for me. Um, other, you know, my wife likes gospel music a lot. Like she rocks the Kanye West uh, choir CD. Her and my daughter do like all the time. And me, on the other hand, I'm not really. I don't even really like gospel music. So, but anyway, long story short, I just I was converted to Jesus that I see in the Bible, not white face Jesus on the stained glass windows, none of this stuff. The Jesus that I see in the Bible, and I read the Bible constantly. So uh, I'm pretty knowledgeable about that book. So that's what I'm convicted about. And yeah, I became a Christian in 1996. Wow. Wow. You know, I, one, it, one thing I got to say about you, even though you're a Christian, like you have never like lost your roots. Like you always talk about, like you got a song about Ghana in on yeah. on the album and you know i've seen you in interviews talking about you know standing on the shoulders of the ancestors no, like no. you still are connected to the continent and to yeah. the history of our people you know our our rich history um so i just want to definitely recognize that about you like you're definitely not the typical christian that we tend to hear about like no. you're, you're, you're you definitely give a lot of recognition to the continent and and, and 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 you're in it, you know what I mean? You're in the struggle of our people and, and you no you've continue to speak about that. Yeah. No doubt. And then, and then see, I, I've been in it for long enough to know and study about it to know that a lot of the most relentless and brave freedom fighters also were believers, whether it was Harriet Tubman, or Nat whether Turner. it was Marcus Garvey, Nat Turner, and numerous other, I mean, obviously Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So many others, whether they were abolitionists, whether they were, you name it, but like staunch freedom fighters, still believers. So, I mean, I know that there is a history of that, but in this day and age, it's less known to many people, but it's it hasn't been escaped on me. So I don't see the clash between the two. Like I see it as, of course, God wants us to be free. That's how I see it. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I mean, myself, I've been saved for eleven years now. Word up! Congrats. Thank you. I mean, and for me, it was the same thing. Um, if you really read the Bible and you read it from an intelligible standpoint, yeah. a lot none of it's going to really make sense to you. You know, you know, in terms of this worldwise. Yeah. You know. I had to come into it from a place of experience. Yeah. And the places that I met Jesus was when places of things that I would never even meant to find him in. You know, I met him in a, in a wedding that my friend invited me to. And yeah, there was a spirit, you know, I followed in a man named Bobby Lewis that uh, he went back to New York and I was there the entire time. And that spirit was a spirit of love. There you go. If you don't understand anything else about Christ, if you don't understand that, yeah. that's what he is. I agree with you know, that. And, 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 and how you show love to people and how you care about people. Yep. God is a God of relationship and he desires relationship. Yep. And that's the reason why he yeah. gave his son to us to show us he wants relationship. So yep. like what you was just saying, you know, religion and everything else, you know, that that's that's really not what, you know, is, is heavenly or gets you into heaven. What gets you in is your relationship and what you time you spend your time in the word in those quiet time moments, you know, yep. by yourself. I agree. You the Holy Spirit can really be seen. 
Mm. I thoroughly agree with that. Thoroughly agree. In fact, like the scriptures talk about, like for believers of Christ, the scriptures talk about do your prayers in a closet. You know, is there's a story that Jesus says, like, don't do your prayers in front of everybody so everybody could be like, oh, he's so spiritual. Wow, look at him. Woo, woo. It's more so, and the, the symbolism is, look, do it to where it's a relationship between you and God. Mm. And that way, you're not doing it for bells and whistles and praise. You're doing it because you really believe that he's right here and that he is guiding not only your life, but the entire universe and everything within it. He's 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 part of guiding that or at least allowing it to happen. So it's either he's doing it or allowing it, one or the other. And he is someone that we should understand and praise and, and so on and so forth. So like, yeah, I, I live... I, I agree with what you just said. That that's the key. That's the key to it. A true relationship. Yep. Wow. So talk to me a little bit about the album artwork for "Don't yeah. Fight Your Demons." It's a yeah. pretty melanated sister on the cover. She has yeah. natural hair. She has flowers in her hair. There's a cowrie yeah. shell necklace, or like a pendant, a cowrie yeah. shell pendant. And her hands are like in this kind of open gesture. Explain the significance of the artwork. It's pretty intriguing when you look at it, but um, I feel like there's a meaning to it as well. Like, can you, can you talk about, you know, the meaning? Yeah. I mean, so it's funny. Like I um, had a few different cover ideas for this record and I run a site on IG called black existence. And people should go on IG. It's a great melanated site. You'll love it. And it, the whole concept is the the African diaspora is diverse and beautiful and it's worldwide. And we're not just here in the United States. And a lot of people understand that, but a lot of people don't. A lot of Black people don't really understand just how big we are and that the world is mainly colored. And we are everywhere. So I wanted to create a site that inspired us to think big instead of just think like if you happen to be trapped in your hood because of poverty or whatever, that you could get on black existence and you're traveling everywhere. So anyway, I say that to say I started that for that reason. During that journey of doing that black existence site, there has been artists that I respect like, wow, look at this dude's art or look at this sister's art. And there's a brother that goes by the name of Fourth Finger who I follow. And he had certain art that I was like, man, this would be amazing. So I talked to him and I said, yo, would you, you know, I'm speech from Arrested Development. I'll run this site, Black Existence that you've been on numerous times. Would you be cool with allowing me to use that very picture that we're talking about as the cover of Arrested Development's record. And he wrote me back and he's like, yo, I charged this, that, and the third. And I said, look, I ain't got no budget. <laughs> I'm gonna be real with you, I have no budget. And that's like the death, that's like a death sentence for a lot of artists. Because, <laughs> yeah. and I get it, because a lot of artists are like, man, I get used all the time. Everybody wants me to do art, but they want it for free. And I'm like, I don't wanna be that dude, but the truth is I don't have a budget. So this is an independent record. It's on my own label and I ain't touring and it's real. So like, you know, but I wanted to at least try. And I told him just like that. And 
he first said, nah, I'm good, dude. And I said, it's all good. I appreciate it. And it's all good. And then he wrote me back on his own. And he's like, you know what? I thought about it. Let's just go on and do this. And I said, great. So we made a deal. I told him I'd give him credit and all of that. And man, it's been incredible. Like, so I put, you know, Arrested Development on there, Don't Fight Your Demons. And the rest is him. And it's a picture of this beautiful, gorgeous black queen. And it just fit to me. It fit the and to me, the hands, the way she's like positioned her hands and, and the way he shot that. I don't know. It's to me, it's like a mixture of something a little demented and something beautiful. Mm. And it, to me, it's a mixture of that. And I love that. I love the energy it gives me. It sort of throws me off. It's not just totally gorgeous. Not you like you're not just looking at it like, ooh, look at you know, look at how gorgeous she is. To me, at least, you're looking at it like, what is she? What's that about? You know, it's almost like that woman in our Get Out, that maid woman who was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that one. It's like it's like this mixture of pretty, but it's like, oh, something's a little, you know, it's interesting. <laughs> It's an interesting look that that he captured in that picture. And that's what I loved about the co- I wanted the cover to represent that. Wow, thank you for breaking that down. I noticed that there is a video for almost nearly every track on the album. <laughs> yeah. Is there any particular reason for that? Honestly, I've always felt like from the first Arrested Development record that most of the time people don't get like what we're doing if they don't see a visual with it. I don't know why, but it's like either we're coming from somewhere a little off center or something that that they need this, the visual in order to like complete, like, oh, okay, this is cool. I don't know what it is, but even from Tennessee, when we dropped Tennessee, before we dropped the video to Tennessee back in the 90s, a lot of hip hop heads didn't even consider it hip hop and they were just confused. Like, okay, he's sort of rhyming, but he's, you know, it's melodic and he's singing and and then what is this? And then there's this singing chorus. I mean, singing solo at the at the at the tail end of the song. Usually, if there is a singing solo, it's in an R and B song. And second of all, it would maybe be in the bridge of the song, not at the end of the song. It was just totally threw people off. And I think the visuals helped solidify what we're about. So I've always believed in at least the music that I released with Arrested Development or even as a solo artist that the visuals might help you get it better. Wow. So that's been my, that's been my experience. Wow. Yeah. I mean, they work. The videos work, man. I mean, it's dope. I mean, it's, this is like an experience like none other that I have ever experienced, you know, with albums, normally with the albums, you know, it's an audible experience and then you see the video later on. Right now you're here. It's just one package and you're just getting both. And it's just like hitting you like boom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Where you need to be hit. And I appreciate that. Right now the window is wide open for this kind of content. More wide than it's ever been. Yeah. yeah I, I feel that way too. Is yeah. there hope for hip hop to redeem control of itself? Definitely. There's always hope. I personally feel like, you know, I'm really hoping like when Tribe came out with their um, Thank You, We'll Take It From Here record, I forget exactly. Thank you for your service, something like that. When they came out with that record and I saw the We The People joint take off, I was really encouraged because to me, that's an example of sort of that golden era hip hop 
being able to capture the imaginations of not only us as people that remember that era, but some young people too. And I was excited about that. And I've always waited for more examples of that. Like, And so to me, I feel like if we could just get more and more examples of that, then the younger folks like your nephew and like, you know, the people you mentioned tonight could have a chance to recognize that, oh, okay, hip hop didn't start with Lil Wayne. Like, and I like Lil Wayne. I'm not, that's not a diss. I, right. I love Lil Wayne, but I'm just saying like, it didn't start there. It actually was something going on before that and it didn't sound anything like that. So I would want more young people. And I, I see it at our shows too, to get hip to the fact that like you said earlier in the interview, hip hop is diverse. And there was a time when X-Clan, Tribe, De La, you know, Brand Nubians, Poor Righteous Teachers, Arrested Development, P.E. Oh, mainstream. Paris, mainstream acts, not underground. Because I think that's one of the things a lot of the young tell me all the time. Well, yeah, there'll be consciousness, but it's always been underground. It's like, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's from your experience it has. That's not right. actually a true statement. It has been mainstream and underground from day one in hip hop where, you know, BDP had worldwide, like you said, worldwide, worldwide. And it's funny that you mentioned that because me and Krill go back and forth <laughs> about this all the time, right? You know, about there there's hope. No, there's not hip hop is dead. It's still happening. It's just like, I don't, you don't, you don't get it. From my experience, there was no lines. There wasn't no like, oh, this is, it's only underground. The real stuff is only happening underground. Oh, no. Underground was the mainstream. Yeah, exactly. This, this is when the community, we reserved the right. Like, that's why Vanilla Ice was whack. Yeah, um, exactly. MC exactly. Hammer was whack. They were not, yeah. they didn't, not, not to say they were whack, but they didn't represent the true essence of the culture because the people right. still had control of it before yeah. the corporations came in and we just let it go you know See, it was funny i agree with you because like if you if you remember it seems like you do mc hammer was dissed for doing a popeyes commercial he was popping he was <laughs> popping i think it was chicken or something like little nuggets of chicken in his mouth and nowadays that would be a win like people getting endorsed by whatever sprite or Popeye's chicken or McDonald's, you know, like right now, I think it's Travis Scott has like some McDonald's toys yeah, going on, that. you know, back in the eighties, early nineties, that was considered like, yo, you're selling out the music. So I'm not judging the people that's doing it now. I'm just saying that's how different the culture was and how controlled it was by the hip hop community, like the Actual purveyors of hip hop and the MCs and the DJs and the break dancers, we was talking about what we would, you know, lift up and allow and what we weren't gonna like allow. And you're right, corporations started to take it over and it totally changed the entire, you know, culture of hip hop music. So yeah. it's funny because I've turned down, like back in the 90s, I turned down a million dollar deal with Coca Cola, a million dollars. And I did it out of love for hip hop, not to not to know that in about ten years from then, that's going to be looked at as one of the stupidest moves that a mogul can ever make. <laughs> like anybody that turns out a million dollar deal, you know, Coca Cola, you like you you're crazy. Like that would become the business model in ten years later when corporations and the whole mogul mindset became the primary mindset of hip hop. 
it's it's so it's so um surreal when you look back at like how much things have changed and hip-hop became the total opposite of what it said and would not become you know what i'm saying that's exactly right that's exactly not pop right. rap is pop now yeah you know? exactly and, right and, yeah, exactly. and which which brings me to my next uh question the nigga factory yeah if people haven't seen this you need to see this it's on youtube you can go on brother speeches uh uh um uh, channel and this is probably the greatest piece of work i've ever seen well thank you i think you kind of beat me to the punch man because <laughs> you know i've been talking about this since 95 when i really started to see this game like transition significantly yeah. Me too. And 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 I was like, you know, what's happening here? And for someone to put it in that kind of perspective, I mean, to down to the cinematography of it, like the kudos to, to the guy that you work with, you know, for, for, yeah. for that, you know, in addition to what you're saying and then visually it all happening, it really puts things together, you know, for what it is that we're speaking about here. And I just wanted to ask you, what was your motivation for starting that? Well, literally, I've been seeing that from pretty much the very beginning. I've been seeing that we've been hoodwinked as a people. Like I know that we're really kings and queens, like, and not literally like we're ruling over somebody kings and queens, but we are from royalty. We are from a dignified, earth conscious, life conscious, spirit conscious people. That is just who we're from. And yet you'd be hard pressed to find that, that energy a lot in our present day culture. So like a lot of our present day culture sort of um, unfortunately has, has morphed into this idea that black culture is really like how ratchet you are. Or like, I don't know if y'all say it, but I, in my household, we'll say like, oh, she really black. Or like, <laughs> oh yeah, he like, he real black. And what that means is that they're acting more what we've now become culturally accustomed to as more whatever, ghetto, more ratchet. It's like these things have been flipped upside down. And I've seen this sort of conversion of what we supposed to now be if we want to be really down. And it's totally changed from what we actually were before. Like marriages, even during slavery, were higher in percentages than what they are now family values and i'm not talking about being like straight and narrow to where you you have no sense of you know like the streets or vibes or anything like that i'm just saying like value systems was more intact during the most harshest of racial times for us than it is now so we have been morphing slowly but surely over the years and it's for numerous reasons. And the nigga factory means just that. It's like this idea of us not being kings and queens, but being niggas has been literally manufactured on a conveyor belt in entertainment and education for centuries. But in particular, since media became so huge on radio and television and now on the music, it's continuing on. And we are morphing without understanding that this has been deliberate against us in order to basically take us out of the playing field of the world's intellectual properties, the world's natural resources, the world's fight for who's gonna control what. 
we're just being slightly moved out of the way and we're just becoming mere entertainment for the world and nothing more. And I know there's exceptions. I'm not saying that there's not black scientists and black excellence. I know there is, but in general, I'm just saying like, this is a bigger picture thing I'm sort of talking about. And so the nigga factory breaks that down and talks about where is this coming from? Where is this idea that black men would talk about our women as bitches, hoes, tricks, chicken heads, like so consistently and so constantly. I know that there's always gonna be that slice of a population that's into that, but it has become so common that even women, like women are some of the biggest purchasers and fans of some of this music that they themselves as well have just like, well, they've sort of been beaten into submission with this whole idea. So that's what it's talking about. And it goes into a lot of depth, as you know. And um, yeah, I'm proud of that. So I, I came up with that concept quite a long time ago. And I actually put it on paper for a production company to do. And they was fired up about it, a real high-end production company. And I was surprised. I was like, wow, this concept, they're willing to mess with this. So we started going into production. And I would be going to meetings. We're writing down a lot of stuff on chalkboards and you know, all these ideas and they're off corporate offices. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And then as we kept on working on it, they kept changing it and changing it and changing it. And be before I knew it, it was nothing like what I initially said. So then I had to go independent again, sort of back to what I was talking about before with insulated and just like self-determination, put my own money into it totally scrapped working with them. I love them as people, they're cool people, but they totally changed the entire concept to have no teeth, no punch. And it was just, it sort of became this sort of like fun, sort of silly show. And I was like, nah, I can't do that. So we never released it. And they felt some kind of way because we had spent all of these months, but I didn't know they were gonna morph it. I'm thinking the initial idea I came up with was what we was gonna do. They tried to change it to make it palatable and to make it mainstream. And then by doing that, they took the heart and soul out of the whole project. So I ended up having to do it myself. It turned out dope as ever. I love it. Proud of it. Me and a visionary here in Atlanta named Jason Orr, he did one of the most prolific parties Atlanta knows. It's called Funk Jazz Cafe, and it's had some of the biggest artists ever perform at this party here. It's world renowned. It's really, really popular. Jason Orr and I worked on, well, I came up with the concept and he is a director and he he did all of the fancy stuff to it that you could see in him and his crew. And I love it, man. I'm really proud of what we did. And um, yeah. That's dope. Um, when is when is part three coming out? <laughs> That's a great question, man. <laughs> so long story short, I've been, I finished part three last year, like probably December. Um, and we, and so I sent it to Jason, him and his crew was working on it. And then COVID hit like, well, even before that, various things were happening that I explained this on my YouTube channel. And this is where it gets into some pretty conspiracy reality type stuff that I believe are very real, but people would probably call it conspiracy things because things were happening to his computer. Things were happening to my computer. Long story short, it's probably the power, most powerful um, episode that I've done. And it got sabotaged numerous times. And then COVID hit. And I still haven't been able to release it. So 
you know, it's it, part of it's in the tank, and then part of it is being reevaluated. You know, I'm having to reevaluate it, me and Jason, because basically, since we first, well, since I first finished it, so much has happened from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor to, I mean, you name it. And some of those things have really taken on such a huge momentum that to not include that in part three, the last final episode of Nigga Factor, I just felt made no sense. And Jason felt the same way. So I think we're sitting on it, wait for COVID to sort of do what it's going to do. And then we're going to reattach it. And I don't know what's going to happen from today to then, but we're trying to make sure it's as up to date as possible. And so that's, that's what I'm working on. Mm. Wow. Yeah, you've been telling me so, about this show on uh, A-Level. A-Level's <laughs> been plugged in, man. Sorry, man. <laughs> I want to take it back to the um, the project again. On, on the track, Amazing. I feel like at the end of the track, you say um, you, you kind of give recognition to the original members, you know, yeah. which I thought was really dope. You know, it's like still fam, you know. Always. But, yeah, like bring, bring us up to speed. Like, I, I'm, I mean, I know... You guys had your challenges in the past, but yeah. where are you all now? Is it is it is it is it safe to say that the relationship is generally better? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I really think our relationship is is really great considering everything that we have been through. Mm. And you know, I think literally everybody in the group has had to go through therapy, like for real. Because Arrested Development, it was a hard thing to experience as a 22, and Ishii was probably 17, 16 years old. Like, it's a hard thing to experience that kind of level of notoriety and fame and then have a drop so quickly with the record and then break up all within the span of three or four years. Like, that's a lot of experience consolidated in four years. And so we've been through a lot. And I, I would say that like over these years, we've all like made amends to, to connect and, and, and vibe with one another. At certain points, like almost every member that was in the original group has been with me because I had to keep this thing rolling for a number of reasons. One is I'm a creative dude. Like by nature, I'm, I'm in the studio a lot. It's what I love. I told you earlier that my passion was being a musician, being a writer. So I love writing. And so that's one reason. But the second reason is it was the brand that could keep money coming in. So like I did solo material that was killing it in Japan. But when we talked about getting back together as a rest of development, it was a much bigger opportunity for everybody. So it was like, okay, I need to keep this thing alive. And so we toured, we did what we needed to do and we kept the brand alive. So over the years, all of these members have been in and out of the group. As I told you, I let people come and go. And um, yeah, we've amended, a, we've amended a lot of these, you know, beefs that we had. And I'm, I'm actually sort of proud of us in this sense. Like we were 20 year olds and I learned later that a lot of the things we went through, whether it was jelly, jealousy, envy, greed, a lot of these just like very regular sins that happens when money gets involved. A lot of people went through that stuff. Like I realize how common it is for groups, especially to go through that kind of you know, 
actual refinement or test. And we went through it too. Wow. Man, I think that's really dope to hear, man. Because, you know, as fans, we never want to hear like, you know, the, the collective, you know, feuding with each other. But to hear that you guys have grown um, and, 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 you know, t- t- to some point gotten over differences, that's pretty dope. Yeah. I also want to talk about um, Baba OJ, who I believe he passed away a couple years ago, right? Yeah, he um, did. 2018. He is known as probably the oldest member of a hip hop collective, which is dope yeah. to really even think of. I don't know too much. Like, I don't hear too much about him. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to just talk about the significance, right, he had on the group or even on you. That Because he was, he was a member that was there, but of course he didn't really rap or sing or anything. But yeah. I, I, want, I want to believe that he had a, a significance, right, an importance. So can you talk a little bit about what he meant to yourself or to the collective definitely so like you know i come from an era so i I will just give you context because in hip-hop you know hip-hop's been through numerous eras and different things motivated each era i came up in an era where concept was very important so like if you remember africa bambata and the soul sonic force they would wear indian outfits and Uh and like that was a thing that they were doing. And then when they were on stage, they were in full guard, you know what I'm saying? Like, bam. And then you got Public Enemy, for instance, who had the S1W. So this is conceptual. They had Chuck D as the main, you know, the hard rhymer. And they had Flavor as sort of like the comic relief. And they had, you know, Griff and the S1Ws as like the military outfit. And they had Harry Allen as the media assassin. And they had, so the point is, is that, it was conceptual. It was more than just like, just just simply musical. And even Tribe's first record, if you if you remember back with the, the Travels record, mm-hmm. you know, they had these like Japanese rice hats on and like, right. it, it was conceptual. You know, um, De La, same difference, X-Clan, very much conceptual. You know what I mean? So Arrested Development came up in that era of hip hop. And so for me, I knew that I wanted a concept that brought, and you mentioned it earlier, a level, a communal energy, like an energy that brought us together. That's what I wanted the visual representation to be for Arrested Development, not just one MC. Chuck D often talks about this, where he he believes that people are missing the group element. Right. Mm. And I wanted the energy of Arrested Development to be that group element where you you got women, men, which was not done a lot. You know, the last that I can recall, the last group that had men and women in it prior to us was Funky Four Plus One, and that was a minute ago. <laughs> that was early 80s. Very beginning, you know what I'm saying? Well, believe it or not, it wasn't commonplace. Like, this is before Fuji's and all of that stuff. And so, you know, concept was important so the elder was a symbolism but he was also a concept of community Mm. and i felt that was deeply important and needed and i talk about that on the song uh the forsaken on this record yes where i talk about why i did the things that i did and why i think that it's important you know what i'm saying and it and it was and it did do what i hoped it would do which was to represent 
things that would spark in us ancestral and communal power. Like it would spark in the listener or the viewer of a concert a sense of, wow, this is symbolically powerful. And musically, hopefully they think it's powerful too. So Baba was that, but then at the same time, Baba OJ was also a true like studier of African culture. So there's this whole community called the Asar Set Society, which is people that study African culture and religion and they're nationwide and worldwide. So he joined the Asar Set Society years ago and everywhere we would go, we would literally have African kings and queens come backstage and greet us in African garb, African uh, religion ceremonies and so on and so forth because of Baba Oje. He spent seven years or so in Africa, different countries in Africa, studied numerous different religions and cultures and things there. So backstage with Baba is like a history lesson every day. You know what I mean? And the lifestyle of being a black man or a person of African descent, but maneuvering with African customs instead of European or Westernized customs was something that Baba brought to the table. Wow. Yeah. You know, I read that one of the last shows that you got, I think one of the shows that you guys did, like right after he had passed, it was like one of the hardest shows yeah. for it's you. Yeah, and I could just imagine, like, because I was, I got, I got a chance to see a glimpse of, like, a, a, a snippet of the show, and I could see like his, his, you know, his picture on stage. Yeah. I could only on imagine what that, what that felt like for you. Uh, that was uh, 2018. What's funny how God works is, so, Baba had stopped touring with us for about I don't know two or so years because we were in Paris, France, ironically, and he fell out in the airport. And at that time, I'm going to say he was probably 83 or something like that. And he fell out, which was unusual for Baba because he was a health nut, vegan, extremely healthy, strong as an ox. I mean, Baba could do one-handed push-ups like all the way up until he got sick. And so one day in Paris, we're traveling, doing our world, and he falls out at the airport. And we're you know, I stay behind and I stay with him. The rest of the group members fly back home. And long story short, he never toured with us from that point on. But I just happened to be in Milwaukee for some business, which is where he's from, by the way. Mm. And he was really sort of doing pretty bad. He had a stroke, couldn't really talk well. And I went to his house and hung out with him and his family. And then about a week or two later, I'm on tour and Baba passes. Wow. And me and my queen were able to see him just about two weeks, a week uh, earlier, which was great because I live in Atlanta. I was happened to be in Milwaukee and was able to connect with him. And anyway, when we got the news, we were on our way to a gig and it just uh, it just destroyed everybody because everybody in the group, even the new members, the new members of Arrested Development have been rocking with me for about 15, 16 years. So they all knew Baba too. And it's it was just, um, but it was one of the most moving shows. The whole entire audience packed out, packed out show. They all, you know, put their lighters up. His picture was in the back of us. And um, I think I was singing maybe Rainy Revolution 
or one of the other tracks from the first album. And it was just one of the most memorable times. It was beautiful. We all dedicated a number of shows to Baba. And um, yeah, we lost him, but he he is an amazing dude. And everybody that knows him, you know, they all attest to him, you know, just being such an amazing inspiration. Wow, rest in peace to Baba. Yeah. Oji, yep. That's amazing, man. That's an amazing story right there, man. Wow. A level, you got another question? Um if you could talk a little bit about the Everyday People podcast, you know, yeah. that you're doing right now. Um yeah. you're doing you're doing this with your wife and your kids. Yeah. You know, that that that's an amazing um thing, I believe. You know, I I, I can really see that you're very family, you know, yeah. marriage big on that and just putting yeah. that out there what inspired you to say hey i mean I, your, your speech you could do a, a podcast by yourself and just make it that way what what inspired you to, to to put that podcast together honestly like for me i do better like in a group setting where i'm able to just conversate because like i hang around my family but i also around like regular people i'm not one that likes to hang around a bunch of um celebrities and i definitely don't like to like i'm not a a heavy materialistic kind of guy so i don't like to like do things for the show of it i don't like to really club anymore or anything like that so i'd rather just hang out and talk and chill and my family and i have these discussions all the time that are really just fun and but deep and just great discussions and so I wanted the podcast to feel that way because I felt like I'm in my sort of area of genius when I'm in that atmosphere. And so I feel really good about the podcast. It's called, yeah, Speeches Everyday People podcast. And it's just that. It's me and everyday people, my family, but also I bring guests on and we talk about a number of things. Some of it's just clowning and just having fun. And then others of it is a little bit more deep and substantive. So it's cool. I, I like it a lot. And we was just talking about it today because we haven't done one in a week. And, you know, we were trying to decide if we're going to do one tomorrow or not. And so we was just talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to ask you, how often do you do it? Like whether it's weekly or not? Or Yeah. Yeah. It's supposed to be weekly. And then when the Don't Fight Your Demons joint came out, I mean, I've been doing so much work right. doing interviews like this, but also like social media work just really working the phones in a sense, like online, going from Twitter to Facebook to, you know, whatever, IG or whatever, just like making sure I'm answering, you know, DMs and just, you know, just working it because it's, it's all independent. So just really making sure I'm on top of stuff. So that's taking priority. And the record has gotten such good love mm. that by far has gotten more love than anything I've done since the first album. Like, wow. Or maybe since Zingala Maduni, the second album. Like, probably everything since then, this record has gotten more love than all of that. So it's it's in a zone where I don't want to miss yeah. that that beautiful moment that's happening right now. I want to be right here and present for it. I think wow. another thing that's really dope that I, I, you know, I actually saw a post about it the other day that this album came out the same year that P.E., I mean, the same day <laughs> that P.E. released their album. Yeah. Paris released the album on this day yep. as well. There's yeah. a lot of like, uh, you know, hip hop, classic hip hop groups and artists who are known for like conscious thought provoking hip hop. 
yeah. that released on the same day. And I'm like, did y'all all get together and like revolution? It's crazy. That's like dope. that's totally God to me because here it is. Like I I me, Chuck D and Daddy O from Stetson Sonic, we have a group that Daddy O formed us into a group called Night Train, right? So I'm we're talking via text, me, Chuck D and Daddy O. And when I finally decided the release date, I, I hit up Chuck and 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 uh, Daddy O, and I'm like, "Yo, I'm fired up! Arrested Development, we're gonna release our next record. It's called Don't Fight Your Demons on September 25th." And Chuck writes back, "Yo, that's crazy. We're releasing. <laughs> and what 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 you gonna do when the grid goes down? You know, on the exact same day." And then I found out later that Paris was also releasing. So I hit him up, and I'm like, "Paris, I love which I love his record." And Nappy you know, Roots so they've released the album as well. Nappy the same Roots, um, some of the brothers from I think even some of the brothers from Nubian, Brand Nubians even released. I forget, but anyway, it's like it was totally unintended. But I feel like it's God just making it a better story so that it can keep some you know get some traction in this industry, and um, it's working. I mean, a lot of people are celebrating the fact that. These these artists are coming out on the exact same day, and we didn't orchestrate that. Wow! Listen, man, brother, it's this has been amazing. You know, yeah. definitely one of the hallmark hallmark periods of my career, of our career here at Out the Box. This is a movement that we've been having going on for nearly ten years now, crew. Yeah, but beyond ten years. Beyond we ten this years. Two thousand and nine, Out the Box TV. You know, just doing interviews with a number of artists, man, you know, mainly like the, the independent scene artists, but also some of, some of the more, you know, popular names that people know of today, you know, um, but it's always a pleasure to build with, you know, brothers who've had their foot in the game for so long and, you know, it continue to do the work with, with that level of integrity that you have. You know I mean? Yeah, just really trying to put out quality content, quality media for quality content. You know, no we don't really get these kind of platforms too often. And your brothers like yourself, we, we we like to give you guys the roses, give you your I flowers now. And I, um, I, I smell the roses. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to leave you one one last question. Um, when you leave this earth, how do you want to be eulogized? How do you want your obituary to be read? That's a great question, bro. And I don't know the answer to that. I, I do feel like something in the realms of the song Pride that I wrote with um Zingalama Duni album. Somewhere in there, like to me, those lyrics represent what I feel like my life is. And but yeah, I, I you know, I've given up trying to understand how exactly it'll be you know, perceived when I pass, you know what I'm saying? If, yeah, you never know. But I tell you, for me personally, somewhere in that vibe of that record, Pride, the Mary McKeeba sample and the, the lyrics that I'm spitting on that record, I mean, that reminds me of my heart. Awesome, wow. man. Wow. Well, that's a that's a powerful powerful one a level. I'm like, man, how I'm gonna come after that? That's a closer right there. <laughs> but yo, um, I I guess I just want to throw this in before we get out of here, and I thank you again, Speech, for 
taking this amount of time with us. We really appreciate you for that time. Um, you have a record on the album called Young Americans where yeah. it details this conversation between you and it seems like it's a continental African system. Yeah. Um, what do you think is the biggest divide between what we, we call ADOS, you know, African descendants of enslaved Africans, Africans in the diaspora and continental Africans in, in, in terms of like what gets in the way of us being better able to communicate and, and support each other in this fight against system, systemic oppression. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because that track to me is like an example of trying to understand each person's views because a lot of people I've met that are from the continent and from the diaspora too, they see the corruption in their own country and they're like, yo, there's corruption in America, but there's also tons of opportunity and y'all are missing it, like meaning black people and y'all don't get it. And so if I come there, I'm going to take advantage of the stuff y'all laugh at. Like y'all don't want to go to school. Well, we do. Y'all don't, you know, you, you guys think the school is European education or whatever. Well, I'll go there. I'll get this degree. Y'all say degrees don't really do nothing. I'm going to get that degree. Y'all say that you know, there ain't no opportunities for blacks. Watch me come there and let me do what I'm going to do. And compared to where I'm from, some of these people will say, nah, it's a lot of opportunities. So I get that a lot. And so while that song is really not about a particular woman that I talked to, it's really sort of amalgamation of a few different people over life that I've talked to. And I think that that's a lot of times the divide where a lot of Africans who still have their culture, their original culture, whatever tribe they're from, they have that culture. They have that sort of community moral code that they live by. And their feeling is, look, go here to this country, make that money and get out and send it back to your people back home. But yeah, work that corner store or work that cleaning service or work that taxi cab, whatever you got to do, go ahead and do it, make that money, stack that money. And, and make the best of it. That's sort of their view. So what I'm talking about in the song, and this is what I believe in real life too, is that, well, you got to understand what we've been through here and things like Black Wall Street, you know, from Oklahoma, just the bombings, the, the fires. A lot of these things have trained us that no matter what we do, we're going to just get a new form of opposition against it. So whether we own our own land and we have our own communities, which some of these things I just mentioned are examples of that, we'll still get bombed. Right in Philadelphia, near y'all, the MOVE organization had block of land. They were growing their own food. They had their own arms. In a sense, they were their own little nation. But those people were bombed in the middle of a city street in the United States. Wow. My point is, is that there is examples of oppression beyond just things that we tend to talk about, like police brutality. This was more orchestrated where, just like in, in the Black Wall Street situation, where the entire town with businesses and property and all of this was just flat out either burned down or stolen. And the government did nothing about it. And not only did they not do anything about it, but most people until recently didn't even know what happened, black and white. So there is some scars that we as American descendants of slaves have that an immigrant coming here doesn't even know the history of and pretty much may not care so deeply because they have their own problems that they're coming from. 
and they're coming here just to succeed. So they got this lighter feeling of like, look, I'm just coming here to get that money or that education or whatever I'm trying to get. And then I'm sending it back home or I might make a living here, but they just have a different view. And I think we as blacks need to not judge our African brothers and sisters so harshly because they don't understand our experience and vice versa. They shouldn't judge us so harshly because they don't understand our unique experience of what we've experienced here in America. So that song is talking about that. And at the end of it, you know, I give these characters, these fictional characters in a sense, I give them a chance to rec to reconcile, even though they have different views. You know, she's down with Allegba, I'm down with Jesus. She's down with wanting to move to DC. I want to move to Ghana. You know what I mean? So it's like there's two different viewpoints. But I say it in the song, we all have a different vision of what freedom means for us. And we got to be able to respect that as a diaspora, as a total family. Wow. You know, I think I think it's We'll See is one of the, the, the final tracks on the album. You have, uh, I think in the hook you say, I remember touring with James Brown when he was too yeah. old to be on stage. He yeah. said that won't be me. And then you go on to say some other things. And I really had to think about that because you guys put out this debut album, which has these big hits, these Grammy winning records. And we, me and A-Level talk about this a lot when we, we talk about Illmatic, right? Like this idea yeah. of your, your, your classic record that came out years ago just can't yeah. live up to the hype, right? Yeah. But you've been you've continued to put out music, you know, yeah. you've continued to tour, you've continued to, I guess, I don't want to say reinvent yourself, but keep yourself fresh and keep the Arrested yeah. Development name out there. So yeah. it speaks, it speaks to something, you know, in terms of your, your ability to continue on. So tell me, where do you find the satisfaction as an artist, given all of that you know, idea of like not being able to live up to new records being more popular than the first, the first debut. Like, how do you stay satisfied and still keep motivated even to this day? That's a great question, bro. Cause like the whole song we'll see is about that. You know, like the chorus, I remember touring with James Brown when he was too old to be on stage and I forget it now off the top, but like, you know, is that going to be me? You know what I'm saying? Like, Am I going to like continue to move forward and everybody still talk about the first album more than they want to talk about Don't Fight Your Demons, the, you know, this this album? Like, is it going to be my whole entire existence that I can never like sort of get under the shadow of three years, five months, two days in the life of? And the whole question mark is we'll see. Right. And. I feel like a lot of artists have to do that. Like I was talking with uh, Michael Stites from REM and he was saying like, look, man, I feel sorry for y'all because your first record like blew off the roof and everybody's like expecting y'all to go from there up. And it's like, nah, he said, my group REM, we had a bunch of whack records for a while. <laughs> and then we finally got our chemistry together and started releasing major hits. And I always looked at that and I was, and I talk about it on We'll See, like I always felt like Arrested Development came out and we went straight to sex. It's like, 
the first time we <laughs> see each other, we're going straight into sex. And we didn't have no date. We didn't have no time to talk, no foreplay, no nothing with our fan base. And because of that, it was tough to sort of go backwards. And so a lot of our records, we were trying, we were trying to experiment for quite a while to figure out where is our lane because the record was so successful that we, you know, it's tough to follow that up. You know what I mean? Like it's like Prince with Purple Rain or Michael Jackson with Thriller. Or so many artists, you know, Nas with Illmatic. It's like, I feel like the same thing. I, I don't know if I can't speak for him as to whether or not he's chasing it, but I will say that he's had that struggle of everybody comparing every record he's ever done to Illmatic. You know what I mean? And that's what happens with us with three years. Yeah, I was telling people, man, I mean, it, it, it's going on be, to be beyond just a hip hop classic. It's a musical standard, especially yep. if it's observed in colleges and Smithsonian museums and stuff no like doubt. that. <laughs> he, he said it, it's taken a life of his own. It has. You know? no and for my thing, my whole spin on it is like, you know, embrace it. I embrace agree. it. Yeah. You, you could and be I'm glad for it. I mean, when, I'm grateful. You know, when you try to turn in the other direction, it looks as though, you know, you're you're uncomfortable with that, you know, the discomfort yeah. shows, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like, like to me, the beauty of this record, Don't Fight Your Demons, is that everything that happened to me and to the group is is able to be better expressed in this record because it happened. So like all of this vulnerability, all of this, yeah. our particular journey, our journey was different than Tribe's journey, you know what I'm saying? Like Tribe's journey was able to have, but, but Dela's journey was very similar to ours. But like Tribe's journey, on the other hand, they had a couple records and then it's like, oh, we got it. We got this way of we're gonna approach music. And to me, Low in Theory was the beginnings of that. But you know, it's like, then they, they were able to sort of ride that, that vibe. And um, you know, I feel like we're starting to catch the energy now. <laughs> I most definitely feel that on this record, man. From the yeah. from from becoming, you know, I heard yeah. that. I, I, saw, I was like, wow, wow. they you. really knocked. They really knocked this one out the park, you know. Like, thank you, crazy. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we got a little something now, like that that feels like we could we can we can be in a vein now and 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 have some fun with this. You know what I mean? Indeed. Wow, speech. You know, I thought about this today, and I just want to share with you before we get out of here. Arrested Development. When I think about what you guys did when you when you you know when you started out, I think about you guys were like the only group that I could think of that was able to bridge the gap with hip hop and that melodic sound. And, and not be attached to a movement. And, and what I mean by that is like, when you think about Tribe Called Quest, you, you, they're connected to the native tongues, right? Very much, yeah. You know, when you think about even like Outkast, you got the Dungeon Family, you got Goody Mob. Like yeah. you guys came out, had the hip hop sound, connected with the mel melodic sound, the singing and all of that. But I, I realized that y'all weren't like attached to a movement. And I thought, I thought like just thinking about that, I'm like, wow, that's like pretty innovative. Like I'm almost like curious to know like what, what mindset got y'all to be able to just step out and just on your own, just do that. That's just my last question I, as, I, as, I, as, I, as I'm thinking about the impact of the group, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that question because the truth is, is that I think it helped me being from Milwaukee because even to this day, Milwaukee's not truly on the map for hip hop. And so I, I didn't expect to be accepted. You know, like I wasn't expecting it. Whereas Tribe, even with Tribe, like they came from, jun- like Tribe and Dayla came from Jungle Brothers, really in a sense, as far as getting yeah. on. Red Alert was their dude, Jungle Brothers dude. And Red Alert was already like very much the trendsetter for a lot of hip hop at that time. So they sort of had a conduit of how they can get onto the, you know, people's consciousness. Atlanta was not really known for hip hop. If you remember back in the early 90s, late 80s, it was not known for anything. I mean, like as far as it had some local artists that were doing their thing in Atlanta and people knew about them in Atlanta, but world not so much and the closest thing to southern hip-hop was probably ghetto boys and luke down in miami that was it and miami was a coastal sound it was a totally different sound and that was it and so west coast was really you, you guys in new york and in california was really pretty much what hip-hop was and um so for us we really didn't even have the choice to ride with a crew. We didn't have any, there was no crews doing this like on a big level. LaFace wasn't down here yet. Um, they would end up coming down, which is what Outkast and Dungeon Family would end up signing to. Right. Dungeon Family wasn't out yet. Outkast, Goody Mob, none of them was out yet. So for Arrested Development, to me, I felt like we were having to carry Atlanta on our shoulders as a group. Wow. I really, I mean, look, maybe some Atlanta artists could tell me who was out at that time that was making the type of numbers and impact that we was, but maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but I don't remember that because I'm, we were right here. So I just remember us carrying it and Chris Cross was doing it too. Like yeah, Chris Cross was way bigger than us. I mean, they were like a kid sensation, like the Beatles, basically <laughs> hip hop Beatles at the time, you know? Um, so it was us too. And they weren't representing the South necessarily, you know, like they were from here, but our whole image, our whole, we, we put everything, like we put all our chips on the table and said, we ride for the South. This is, this is where we come from. So everything from the rural South imagery you see in Tennessee or people every day, or even Mr. Window, all of that was what we rode on. Whereas crisscross didn't ride on that. They just had a sort of a generic white background type of, look to their stuff and just the backwards jeans and the whole dress code type of thing but they weren't repping like you know look at look at where we are based in you know what i mean it wasn't that type of thing that i can remember at least and i don't know anybody that was doing that so for us we was the guinea pigs in a sense like sort of just going out there and doing it and um yeah so wow we didn't have that we didn't have a choice wow thank you for sharing that speech Man, we so appreciate you taking the time once again, man. I'm going to look for more, you know, that's going to come out, not only with this record. I'm sure there's more videos, you know, on the way. Um, any last things you want to say to the people out there in terms of the record or in terms of the other stuff you have going on? Well, two things. Check out Don't Fight Your Demons, a classic Arrested Development record, I think, people can really latch on to this and, and enjoy what we're doing. And then um, it's on Bandcamp. It's on our site. 
we'd rather you pay for it. You know, nowadays, especially we're not touring, we're not doing anything. So if you, if you got the money to do it, please, you know, put down a couple bucks, pay for the record. It'd be beautiful for us. And then, um, I'd say, check out my film, 16 bars. Cause I go into a jail for 10 days and I write music with inmates and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever done for me personally. And then also the people that seen the film, they, they say that. So I would tell people you can get it on YouTube right now. You can go on YouTube and peep out, just type in 16 bars to film and you got it. So yeah, check, check both projects. Don't fight your demons and 16 bars. Brother, you know, uh, want to shout you, man. Salute you. Um, you always have a home here without the box. Consider us family, you know, now and forever, man. So uh, definitely myself, man, I will be praying for you, your family, and everything you touch, brother. Indeed. Appreciate it. Yes, brother. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Same here, y'all. Appreciate y'all's love, man. And the, the vibe was good. We talked almost two hours. So we, <laughs> right. we, it just we, we had a conversation. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, man. So um, I definitely want to shout out to all the people that were tuning in today. We had a lot of people kind of like commenting. So thank you to each and every one of you, man, for, you know, commenting and, and, and just rocking with us for the night the interview will be up usually i'll do these interviews and we'll just make it private and then relaunch it on friday but i'm gonna leave this one up so if you didn't catch the interview um you know if you if you caught it on the tail end or you came in earlier you know this interview will be um up the full interview will be up for you to check out on out the box tv youtube remember to check for our podcast which is on uh, a lot of the different podcast networks, wherever you can find um, podcasts like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We release a new audio podcast every Friday. This will also be available as an audio podcast. We're going to put up the audio. And um, again, speech, man, thank you so much. I am definitely going to be, you know, listening to this record much more. I'm a yeah. lyric head, so I'm going to be digging in. Like, in, I've already done a, a, a number of it, but I'm going to be still digging in, man. And I just I, thank you, I think you, this man. is the best lyrical effort I've ever heard, you know, from speech thus far, man. Wow. You know, wow. I appreciate man. that. He, that he, means goes, a lot he, goes, he goes in on yeah. this, man. Indeed, indeed. I, there's, there's, there's so much on here. Like you said, you, there's stuff you're uncovering personally. But um, what I love about the record is that it has so many different sounds to it. You know, but... One thing that's consistent is the soul. Like the soul exists on every track, but you hear a lot of like, like how you say, like early hip hop. Like you have like those breaks and stuff that you hear. And, yeah. and I don't know if that's configure and, and you guys just coming together and you coming together, but like this is a hip hop record. Make yeah, no and it's on the turntables too. So remember yeah. I said I started right. off as a DJ. I'm scratching on on the song Amazing for instance. I'm scratching all over that bad boy. <laughs> that's that's what it is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, man. So family, thank you again for tuning in. And we will catch you on the next show. Me and A Level, we got another show coming up. Um on we planning for it Saturday. We got a um we got an album review show for um, that we're planning on that we I won't talk about yet, but you know, fo folks should check check out for that, man. But thank you again, speech. Much success, peace, love, and life. Stay healthy, you know. Stay safe, man, and you know, 
much thanks again, bro. Appreciate and you it. know you know how we can we normally end the show, man. You know, speech can relate to this. And you what happened to peace? Peace, 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 peace.